Welcome to this edition of the Fast Podcast. Once again, this week, joined by Judd Lorman of SEAL Team. He's Lieutenant Commander Eric Blackburn on SEAL Team on CBS Wednesday nights, but also a lifelong, pretty much lifelong wrestling fan who, at the time and in the, in the peak of professional wrestling, and from the territorial standpoint, lived in the hottest territory in the land, and that was uh, the Mid-South Territory when it was run by Bill Watts in the 1980s. And Judd, thanks for sticking around do this second part the last episode if, if you haven't listened to it yet go back uh, fans and listen to it wrestling fans particularly because we kind of cr- talk a little bit about the early years of mid-south wrestling back when it was tri-states and it was kind of a small operation and then you had the bill watts takeover i think 1981 is when he actually bought out leroy mcgurk so we're here now to start segment two and we've just finished our discussion of the greatest 60 minutes in professional wrestling television history, and that was the second DiBiase turn. This was the turn good because a few years prior, in a, on kind of a smaller scale, was another great episode when DiBiase had turned heel. Mm-hmm. Which, yeah. again, he was the ultimate babyface. He had been rookie of the year. He was the go- ultimate good guy. His dad was a wrestler. Blah, 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 blah. And all of a sudden, Bill Watts turned him bad and freaked a whole lot of people out several years. So I was probably like 81 or 82 when they made him a bad guy. Yeah, I want to say 82, if I'm not mistaken. Or late eight, December 81, somewhere in there. We'd have to ask uh, uh, Jonathan Duke. He would uh, know. Duke, if you're he, listening, he, text me and let me know. Yeah, he would know. He would know the the month uh, on that. I'm pretty sure. But uh, yeah, he loads up the glove for the first time. You know the uh, the black glove, black, black Betty or whatever he called it. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes, and loads up the gloves. Knock, knocks out dog. Turns on the dog. I mean, for crying out loud, he was his best man in his it wedding. His wedding, and and you know that you lead me to something here that we probably should have touched on in the first episode, but it, it does give us good fodder here. Bill Watts, you pointed this out to me, and I probably had noticed it, but never really wrapped my head around it. You know, there were always interview segments, not only the yeah. the regional promo segments segments in an hour hour show to tell you to come down to the municipal auditorium to see Hacksaw Jim Duggan take on Mike Boyette or whatever it was. Those segments were there. Ernie Ladd was talking out the side of his neck and the whole deal. Mm-hmm. But there were segments of interviews that were part of the storyline of the show where maybe they're standing next to the ring and and uh mr wrestling two suitcase had been stolen by mr olympia or what whatever the storyline was so these interviews were very important but a lot of times the storyline that bill watts wanted didn't really come out in the interview itself it was his interpretation of the interview that followed explain explain what bill watts was a master at yeah, so Bill Watts, you know, in the 80s had a, a, a couple of different periods where he had others booking for him, so who would, who would write most of the, uh, the, the storylines or whatever, but it was never done, it's kind of like Vince McMahon, it was never done without Watts' approval. So Watts knew the direction of everything he wanted to do, uh, as far as television stories, who was going to feud with who, and I, you know, I think it was like probably in the 90s when I got a hold of a bunch of Mid-South tapes. And I started going back and watching these tapes that it really hit me that, wow, you, you know, looking at it now, knowing that Watts was in charge back then, mm-hmm. whereas, whereas like, in the, you know, in, in 1984, I'm watching this and he, I, I don't know that Bill Watts is writing this stuff. No, he was the he was the colored commentary guy next he to either Boyd Pierce or Jim wrestler. Ross, you know? Yeah. So so uh, but but then watching it in the 90s and really listening close, what you would 
have like week after week is you know you'd have a guy like Duggan comes out he Duggan turns and 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 is now a fan favorite and he comes out and does a promo and he's you know I'm tired of Scanner Aguard I'm you know putting down America and these people such and such and blah you know and goes off yelling about uh, Akbar America and what he's going to do to Kamala let's say right and then if you watch the program you know the the next couple matches on that particular program that episode what you'll hear is watch translating that interview into See, painting a picture that none of it Duggan said Duggan out here earlier talking to Akbar telling him that he's he's tired of what the foreigners are doing he's a pro-american he's tired of the the, the foreign car companies coming in and taking the job. He's, he's, he's tired of the, the plants closing down in the small towns that, that built this country. And, and, and Duggan didn't say anything like that at he all. He said nothing like that, right? <laughs> he said USA. And <laughs> yeah, that was about it because Duggan wasn't yeah. exactly, you know, the, the greatest Mike guy in the world. So so watch would, would whatever story he was moving toward, which was at this point, you know, you had a lot of the, you know, this was after the Iranian hostage crisis, but obviously oh, before yeah. 9-11. So there was a lot of storylines in just about every wrestling territory that had a Middle Eastern wrestler, wrestler that was a bad guy. And Akbar had been around forever. And and yeah. so then he was the bad guy manager. So this was this was take it and turn it up to 11 on a ten on a ten volume you know a ten level knob, turn it up to eleven by interpreting the interview and getting the story out there that you really want. So that he would even say, "Well, he challenged so and so to such and such." And now that I've gone back and looked at it, no, he didn't. He didn't he do really any didn't. of that at no, all. No, he really didn't. Yeah, you're right. And, and and I started noticing these things, and it's like, I that's when I realized like how brilliant the guy was. Like, no, he was um, absolutely. Yeah, it, it, Legendary. Legendary. Unfortunately, with all of the things that Bill Watts did well and all of the quirks of, of... of working for Bill Watts, you got fined. Uh, you, we we can touch on that real quick. You got fined basically for everything. So the guys that yeah. worked in this territory made minimal money, though they started out with a with, okay. You're going to make four hundred dollars for tonight's match, but I'm going to mm-hmm. back out forty five dollars because you rode with a good guy. I'm going to do, you, you know, you lost a bar fight. You're lucky I'm not firing you. I mean, like there were so many things that Bill Watts did to punish the yeah. guys to, to, to stick to the re, the real story that he was trying to portray. Yes, correct. And, and in fact, uh, it, it, it was a rule in the locker room. It was a rule once you worked for Mid-South. If you did lose a bar fight, you were immediately fired yep. because you lost a bar fight. <laughs> yeah, you can't have a professional wrestler who might be the North American heavyweight champion losing to some dude at Poets in the parking lot. I mean, you just yeah, can't yeah. have it happen. Yeah, I want to read a few paragraphs here from a blog that Jim Cornette wrote uh, a few years back talking about working for Mid-South Wrestling mm-hmm. and, and, and watch his, uh, how much of a stickler he was about this. Because, again, all the territories in the country back then, they all adhere to good guys don't associate. Good guys don't fraternize with the bad guys. Right. When you're in public, period. But, as he says, um, it was um, – Let's see, no territory was acceptable, but Watts took it to a new level with fines, firings. This may seem ludicrous to, to today's fan, but even if wrestlers are recognized, which in many cases they aren't, no one thinks anything of it nowadays. But there at the time in Louisiana, the wrestlers were the biggest sports celebrities in the region. The TV show, and we talked about this in the last episode, 
the TV shows did moon landing level ratings yep. in so many of the Mid-South markets where better than half of the viewers watching any show were watching Mid-South Wrestling. And Watts was not about to have his stories or it was not about to have stories going around town of the guys out having a drink together after the matches. For 20 years afterwards, this is Jim Cornette talking, I had a spidey sense of when a baby face was around, and I instantly went for the door. And this was due to my time with Watts. It didn't end with public fraternization. If you were doing a mainstream media interview, if you were in a lawsuit, if you were giving a deposition, if you were under oath as a witness on the stand, and you even intimated that pro wrestling was prearranged or in any way not legitimate, that was considered your resignation and your ass. <laughs> and rightfully, he says, and rightfully so, because wrestlers came and went through the territory, but this was Watts' home and his business, and he had been and he had to be there long after you were gone. Like they took this thing incredibly serious. Mm-hmm. And when we talk about the television, now you well, you say, okay, well. Some people thought, you know, I'm sure some people knew it was fake. Of course. You know, I remember my uncle in 1984 telling me, oh, it's all fake. But he was captivated by it. Right. And he was, one of these, he was one of those guys who would say, well, that might not have been fake right there, but the rest of it is. Yeah. You know, like, he put him in the sleeper hold. I really think he did go to sleep. But before right. that, that punch to the heart would have killed him if it was real. Yes. And, and, and um, again... Watts was the most notorious, uh, strictest boss in the entire country when it came to rules like this. But let me, let me give you this quote, because this is incredible. And this goes to the storytelling in the ring fast. So here it is. There were repercussions as well if your match did anything to mar the believability of the sport of wrestling. One night in Houston, Texas stands out in my mind. The Midnight Express and Ernie Ladd faced off against the Rock and Roll Express and Hacksaw Jim Duggan. While the match got a great crowd reaction, upon viewing the tape of the event, Watts issued fines to most of the participants. Ernie Ladd had used his trademark tape thumb to get heat from the crowd, but he was fined because he, it was unauthorized use of a gimmick. Anytime there was a gimmick, like a loading of a glove, you had to get permission from the boss. Oh my God. He didn't ask the boss to use it. Because Watts didn't want things like that overused. So he was fine. Dennis Condry, who at one point raked his fingernails, you know, the old scratch the back thing? Yeah, the whole pull the hands down on the back, yeah. Yeah, he raked his fingernails down Ricky Morton's back to get cheap heat. He was fine because in Watts' words, if you're going to do that, I better see some bloody rivers on that man's back. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Eaton and Duggan were fine because they had fought outside the ring using a chair in front of the referee – so they were fine because they buried the credibility of the referee. Yeah, because the referee should have st- called the match, but he couldn't it's because that, be was, real. that wasn't That's the right. ending. Right. Carl Fergie, the ref, was fine for allowing himself to be buried oh without disqualifying anyone. And finally, Dr. Death Steve Williams, who was running in to save the good guys uh, after, after the, the bad guys were abusing him in the finish, he was fine for coming in wearing shorts and flip-flops, which violated Bill Watts' dress code because even in the oppressive Texas and Louisiana heat, the talent were expected to dress and act as professionals. Wow. Watts had wanted to use that match on TV, and he, re- he felt that it was rendered unusable because of these acts and cost the company money. So everyone was fined. That's insane. 
That's awesome, though. I mean, if you, we think about it, the, the, go, going to the extreme to to make the product the best that it could be and to keep the credibility to the level that it could be. Obviously, he could never admit it wasn't real, but, but he knew people knew it wasn't real, but he had to do everything he could to make them question whether or not they were right about that. That's right. That's right. And he wasn't going to give... Uh... He wasn't going to give. He wasn't going to give anyone a foot in the door. You might have known it was fake, but did you really? Could you prove it? You know, right. I mean, you go back and look at what the guys did, and they did so much less in the ring back then, as, as compared to today. Today is I, I won't put down today. I mean, it's you've got incredible athletes doing incredible things, but back then it was so much simpler. But you go back and try to find the holes, find try to find air between a guy's fist and another guy's face. It's tough to do. Right. And usually it was a cameraman's issue if they got a bad shot or the, the director's issue because he went to the wrong camera. Because obviously some camera angles are much better for certain moves. So they were supposed to kind of know how to run the show when they put the whole thing together. So t- every now and then you would see it where a guy would do like a leg drop off the top rope and you could you could drive a car could between yeah. you could drive a car between the guy's face and the back of the guy's knee as it comes down. But overall, you're right. I mean, I can remember the medics would do this um I don't remember what they called it. It was like a backbreaker. And the, it, the, the medics were a tag team probably in the mid to late 70s wore white masks and white um, you know, white wrestling tights, and they would they did this thing where they dropped a guy from like the second rope. The guy would drop him over a draped knee. Well, mm-hmm. if if the if the guy maneuvered his leg just right, I mean, it looked like it really was going to break the guy's back, but there was actually barely any contact because of the the way the feet landed on on. But you didn't know that, like you you until you go back and watch it over and over and over again. You're like, oh yeah, look at that. That was. Obviously, he didn't really hurt himself. But it, at the time, live, or what was live to us watching the, the, the show on TV, it always looked real. Yeah, yeah. And, and what Watts would do is if there was something that they had to show that didn't look, yeah, you know, like you say, there might have been some space between that leg and his head or whatever, it was probably followed up minutes later by somebody taking one of the stiffest chair shots you've ever seen. Right. To erase that doubt from your head really quick. Yeah. And of course, you would have the you would have the the com, the the commentators doing the boy. He got away, just ba- barely backed away from that that drop kick, and it grazed him. But it still knocked off, knocked him off his feet. He still lost his balance. So yeah, they right, would still right. The sell, would cover it well. They would sell yeah. the misses, you know. So so you've got this ultimate pinnacle in the mid '80s of Mid South wrestling, and then. Everything changes, and I mean it changes, and, and we don't have to get into the whole Georgia Championship Wrestling sold events and all that stuff because that changed a lot of the dynamics too. But Bill Watts was just easing into this UWF product, which was going to get him out of the regional territory, I think get on the USA Network and be a national broadcast, new set, new fancy broadcast, new theme song, new intro, new logo, new championship belts, and then wham, everything changes. Yeah, everything changed. And, um, you know, many of the the wrestling historians that that have covered this industry will tell you that uh, Bill Watts, at that period, they'll swear by it, had the best TV in the country, the best TV show in the country. Even when he transitioned to UWF, he was still putting on incredible television shows and he had the best chance at going up against Vince, who was going national at the time. 
Uh, but but two things, you know, there's two or three main things that, that really killed off uh, wrestling. Number one is Vince McMahon was expanding nationally. He was buying up talent. He was breaking the, uh, the, the long-standing rules or the customs of the promoters where he would, you know, just back then uh, in the regional days, you didn't cross promotion lines. So, you know, you wouldn't have the guys up in Memphis, Jerry Lawler and them, they wouldn't come down to New Orleans to run a live show. That was Bill Watts' territory. And Bill Watts wouldn't run a show in Memphis. You respected that. Well, Bill Watts, uh, excuse me, Vince McMahon comes along, starts buying up talent, putting them under these bigger money deals, and then turns around and starts running live events in their backyard. I'll never forget the first ever WWF pay-per-view, uh, excuse me, uh, live event that came to the Cajun Dome. Mm-hmm. I went to it, and it was headlined by the Junkyard Dog, Hacksaw Jim Duggan, and Jake the Snake, who was uh, a heel on WWF television at the time, teaming up with the good guys, but he put those three against three of their heels as the main event right here in Lafayette, Louisiana. So what is he doing? He's taking the guys that they know drew all the money in Louisiana. And making them a headline. Putting them in headline, and it's, you know, effectively uh, really helping to kill the territory. And so, you know, you had Vince doing that all over the country to all the territories. But the biggest killer was um, Watts with the UWF. He was poised. He was making he was making plans to go national. And in the midst of all of it, the oil crash in the yep. 80s happened. Yep. No money. Price Nobody had money tank. to go to wrestling matches. Correct. And his his Louisiana towns, his his um, Houston's, his his Jackson, Mississippi's, all these Biloxi's, all these towns could no longer afford it. And so, in the midst of him trying to get investors and, and go national, the one thing that he could always count on the big gates in Louisiana and, and, and in this mid south area, it dries up because of the oil crash. And so, he quickly sold to uh, to uh, Crockett, you know, over there in the. Yeah, the, the Carolina, Carolinas, Carolinas and, yeah. the, and then Georgia, because the Crockett's brought, bought Georgia, which was a big mess because Vince bought it, and then there was a, you know, he had to sell it back, and there was all kinds of craziness happened then. But Vince ultimately knew, I'm going to shut down this regional territory nonsense, and I'm going to because he had the USA Network slot, and he, yeah. he 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 basically tried to monopolize the TBS Saturday slot, and it didn't work at first. So the Crockett's took over, but that that didn't last forever. I mean, it was eventually yeah. they were out. I'll yeah. never forget tuning in to watch Georgia Championship Wrestling, and I guess the only person they kept was Freddie Miller. So Freddie Miller, who had hosted the best of Georgia Championship Wrestling on Sunday nights at 5.05 on the Superstation, um, Freddie Miller stuck around and introduced that first run of the WWWF, or, or I guess I think it was the three W's back then, and I was yeah. I was horrified. I was like, "Wait a minute! I don't want to watch this. I don't like right. this. What What are you doing? Give me back Georgia Championship Wrestling. What happened?" And then so that's like a whole nother dramatic, you know, thing that happened in the wrestling business. But but here in the territory, so it was like a double whammy kind of for for Bill Watts. I mean, he it he, was. he had and done most, the many- right thing. He had positioned himself correctly. He had the storytelling down. He had the the right wrestlers for the most part. He had lost some stars, but he still had people that you could build well, a product around. That's right. And and even with the talent raids that happened, 
Um, he was still positioned. He still had his talent. He still protected his business. He still had great television. You know, uh, the uh, what was it? The, uh, the the Duggan and then the, the Butch Reed and, and Dog who who left. He's he's got the Freebirds in now, and he's grooming them. He, he you know he was the first guy to give Sting a push. Well, I was going to um, say Sting, and at one point they had you know the the Ultimate Warrior was here with Sting as his tag team partner. That's right. That's right. And so he the was Blade he was, Runners, right? Yes, the Blade Runners, and he was doing fine. I think you know he he was doing as well as anyone as far as surviving those talent raids. And you know many of the experts who who covered the entire industry will tell you to this day: had the oil not crashed, had the price of oil not crashed, Bill Watts would probably still be in the wrestling business promoting owning a company today. Yep. He was that good, and Mid South was that good. But it all went wrong, and again, not his fault. There was no way you could see a crystal ball of the oil crash. And you're right. I mean, you think about, you know, if they needed some quick cash, and I mean, I know this was planned out ahead of time, but you do a show in Thibodeau, you do a show in Morgan City, you do a show in Hammond, you do a show in Lafayette, you do a show in Lake Charles. You you know, you you do shows five nights a week. Sometimes they did two shows in a day. Oh, yes, yes. Uh, In fact, um, in in that same blog that I was reading from Jim Cornette, he talks about the the schedule and the fact that back then it was known in the, in the entire country. If you could survive working with Bill Watts, you could survive anywhere uh, because of the demanding schedule. They would, he, he, Cornette says in their first year, in their 12 months of, of wrestling for Mid-South, they put 120,000 miles on their car. Mm-hmm. They had 25 days off for that year for illnesses, vacations, and whatever, but they wrestled more matches than there were days of the year. Yeah, so you do because 380 matches in 340 days. Exactly. And you talk about a grind, man. And, and he points out the fact that back then, uh, in, in words only Cornette can say, you know, they had potholes in the highways this, uh, big enough to bury a German Shepherd in. Mm-hmm. And, 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 Wear and uh, tear on the car and the whole deal. Yeah, because Louisiana was, was uh, known for its uh, – lovely road system back then you know well it's still kind of the same it's still kind of the same (laughs) but you literally had oklahoma arkansas louisiana parts of texas mississippi probably like um maybe a market or two into alabama but but if you're if you're trying to to get from little rock to jackson and you got to wrestle a Sunday afternoon show and then a Sunday night show, and you're, oh, right. I don't know, Mike Jackson or Mike Boyette or some jobber. I mean, you're, you're driving for 40 bucks. That's right. I mean, they didn't That's make right. any money at all. People people think they made, they didn't make any money at all, but they were all trying to position themselves to be a, a, at the top of the card where they, where they could make pretty good money. Oh, yeah, and Cornette talks about it. You know, they, they, they worked their butts off. But he had an incredible year financially, uh, he and the Midnight Express, because Watts promoted so well, the business was on fire, and he did treat his talent fairly. He gave him great cuts, you know, as far as paydays go. But, yeah, you, you, you worked for it. And, um, you know, and like you say, back then, knowing that these markets were your ace in the hole prior to the, the, the oil bust, I mean, if he needed some extra cash, you know, you, you bring in Ric Flair and you run him and Steve Williams in the Superdome and you make an enormous gate and that keeps you afloat. But then once the oil crashed, everyone's out of work. You can't do that anymore. No, no, because nobody could buy tickets. So, I mean, what did they do, like 64,000 people at one of the, uh, the, the Superdome matches? 
Oh yeah, yeah. Um, and and I think it was the the. Um, that was the dog Michael Hayes and the Freebirds deal after the after the, the the vanishing cream in his eyes or whatever like that. Oh my gosh! And the best story <laughs> to come out of that all uh, come out of that entire thing. So real quick, as fast as mentioned, uh, there's a, a storyline where the, the hair cream gets poured in the junkyard dog's eyes and he's going to be blind. And junkyard dog had to spend however much time it was, you know, better part of six or seven weeks. Watch didn't let him leave his house. He had someone go get his groceries. He, you could not leave your house. No, because he couldn't drive a car because he was blind. He could, that's right. <laughs> he could not risk ruining the story. So then all of a sudden in the downtown municipal auditorium in New Orleans, they bring out the dog because they're about to kick off the, uh, the, the, the revenge part of the story, right? So they bring out the dog, and he's being led to the ring. He's got a, uh, the, the black glasses on and the bandages on his eyes. He can't see. And here come the Freebirds. The Freebirds enter the ring. They surround him. And the municipal auditorium is dog country in, in downtown New Orleans. Mm-hmm. Uh, many Saints fans may not like to hear this, but that's how the Hudak chant got started, Fast. Really? Yes. They were chanting Hudak about the dog. Really? And it bled into the Saints game. Yes, this is documented. So check this out. So they surround him. And this is how serious Mid-South Wrestling was. They surround him. The crowd gets fever-pitched hot. They're about to come over the rails, and a guy jumps over the rail, comes into the ring, stands in front of the dog, stands between the dog and the Freebirds, and pulls a gun out. On Michael Hayes. (laughs) And says, don't worry, dog, I got you back. Oh, my God. And the dog, who can obviously see through the glasses, is now sitting there going, okay, what do I do? I don't want to get fined. I can't just jump jump the guy. And the way... When Cornette tells the story, he says the dog had to sit there and decide: do I, do I break the wrestling rules and ruin the story, or do I let him shoot Michael Hayes? And the dog was conflicted. <laughs> <laughs> and luckily, I think the ref or someone grabbed the guy by the arm and got the gun down before a shot could go off, and they tackled him, etc. So, crisis was averted. But that's how serious this was down here. Yep. And the dog was the ultimate, you know, most probably the most loved wrestler ever in this area. I mean, he, if not, if not the most, one of the most. I mean, he in, in his prime, and he was just he was just a likable guy. I mean, he he again he he wasn't a great wrestler. He he wasn't you know he wasn't a great interview, but he was just kind of an everyman. But I but, think he was. The, I, I think he was like uh, like if you said, "Hey, John, go find go find me three great junkyard dog video, uh, interviews." I couldn't do it. No, I, I don't. I don't know where to start, right? But but dog had that it factor, that charisma. It must have been from that, his days in the NFL, right? Yeah, I don't know. He was just <laughs> one of those special people. I got the chance in the uh, the mid nineties before he died. I got the chance to travel with him, and this was way past his prime. Okay, right. He's he's doing the little local indie shows for for uh, just for a quick buck. I mean, it was, and in some ways, it was a sad situation because he was down on his luck. But what was so amazing was. When he would walk into, uh, when we would stop to get a bite to eat somewhere, and he would walk in somewhere, he, even if people didn't know who he was, they knew he was somebody. Right. Because the way he interacted with people, it was, it was like nothing I've ever seen before in person. He was that charismatic of a guy. It's, 
he he was an ama- he was an amazing star here and and I you know I I got to to know him a little bit. He would come around the radio station and he would you know I would see him down. It's just so sad to say this, but when I lived in Youngsville, I'd see him at the the Six Pack Plus, which was a little Shamrock station there, and he'd set up a card table and he'd sell Xeroxed copies of his picture. Yeah, for, for a couple bucks because because he, he didn't have any money and I mean I you know it's pretty well documented the 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 uh, the you know substance issues he had later and but he was a very nice guy and, and he, oh yeah he had yeah. actually been at the radio station the day before he died he had come in for an interview and so that and he was great he was fine and the next day i think he was driving to his daughter's graduation in mississippi yes. had a heart attack and died but they called me at the radio station because they thought that maybe their schedule was wrong and he was in lafayette at the radio station that day he was and there, supposed to be there there had been a yeah. mix-up yeah. and i was like no he was here yesterday and then you know later we found out he had he had passed away while he was traveling but but you know, when you look back on it, and and all of the, all of the the time that you were a fan before you kind of got involved in it, who are some of the guys that were like the ultimate? Like I'm gonna get, I don't care what I got to do, I'm not gonna miss this 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 week because so and so is gonna be wrestling so and so. Who were some of the guys that you were like these are these are the reasons I watch wrestling? What what characters? What what wrestlers around oh, here? Man, you know, even though they were bad guys, I loved watching Ted DiBiase and Doctor Death when they were a tag team. Yeah, um, I loved the Rock and Roll Express. You know, I mean, I was in seventh or you know, sixth and seventh grade. Maybe no, no, no. I wait. It was between fifth and seventh grade that the Rock and Roll Express were big, and I was huge into them. Terry Taylor, I thought was incredible. Uh, I, I still to this day think he was one of the most underrated wrestlers of all time, as far as on a national scale. Um, I loved when they brought Ric Flair to town, and who doesn't love what you know when Ric Flair is on anything? But uh, Mid South man, uh, uh, Duggan, hello. Yeah, I mean, here's another guy who's just like just oozed charisma, man. You know, you it's, know? it's funny because I look back on it, and 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 though I hated these people, the people that that. And I, yeah, I say hated. You know, you know what I mean. I, I just I despise them. And but, but the people that I think I was most interested in were Ric Flair, the Spoiler, the Assassin, oh. and and also the Superstar. And it was not because of the masks so much. It was the interviews. They were so good. Oh my gosh! I yeah, mean, the Assassin could... is so. Uh, Jody Hamilton is so underrated. As, as a Agreed. professional wrestler, he was incredible in an interview. He could bring so much heat. We, even if he didn't say anything, you'd see his little scrunched up eyes and his mask, and you're just like, I just want to punch that old guy, you know. But but Fast, this- I think of him as the the opposite the, the opposite counterpart for Dusty Rhodes. He could talk people into a building. Yep. I mean, you know, on the other on the heel side, where yep. Dusty did it as the babyface. This- but yes, he, he was such an incredible talker. And you know the superstar Bill Eady was was really intelligent. He was obviously a, a, a smart guy. And so when he gave yeah. an interview, you know, you thought, "Who's under that mask? Is he a college professor? Is that guy a CEO yeah. of some company? He's way too smart to be a wrestler." What you know? What's he doing? He talks different. He talks different. <laughs> and in the because well, he, he was really smart, and and the spoiler just scared the bejesus out of me. Don Jardine was such a 
big, menacing guy, and the fact yeah. that he could walk the top rope and do all that stuff, I was fascinated. Maybe the mask had some of the mystique for me, too, but the interviews, not so much Don Jardine, because Gary Hart always always spoke for him, really, but but the, the assassin and the superstar, to me, and Ric Flair, and Dusty, obviously. Yeah, the, Dusty. The, well, and the one that I forgot to mention on my list would be Jake Roberts. Oh, he was great. He was. We got to see in this region. We got to see, folks, the the birth and the explosion of the DDT. Yep, it was an accident, wasn't it? Wasn't it like yes. some sort in of Lake move Charles, that was supposed to be was, something uh, else? Yeah, he had like a front face lock on a guy, and the guy who he's got the front face lock on is pushing him backwards. You know, pushing Jake backwards right towards the corner, but the guy trips. And as he trips, it makes Jake trip and fall backwards, and the guy lands on his head, and the crowd pops and goes, whoa, because they'd never seen that. Right. <laughs> and he thought, wait a minute, I'm on to something here. I can do this so again. He, yeah, so he starts trying it again, and it becomes the DDT. And anyone who wants to see the what I still say is the most insane crowd reaction ever, go to YouTube and type in uh, Jake Roberts DDT. Dark, Dark journey. journey. I knew that's where you were going. Oh my god, it was so awesome. I watched that not very long ago with Dick Slater, who's crying like a baby. I mean, the whole thing is so good when he DDTs Dark Journey because you don't think he's really going to do it. Like you don't well, think. Well, you know. and the way they set it up too was like, you know, you even though things weren't as politically correct as, as nowadays, obviously, you still didn't want to have a baby face like Jake the Snake Roberts. He couldn't, like, beat up a girl. He can't hit a girl. I mean, <laughs> he what's that. he doing? So how did they set it up? They had Dark Journey attack him and spray the stuff in his eyes so he can't see. So it's supposedly he thinks he's going to do it to, to, to so uh, Dick Slater. Blind. He yeah, doesn't he's know what's going on. He's reaching out. And instead of grabbing Slater, he grabs her, yep. <laughs> hooks her, and the crowd... Goes, goes crazy, insane. Oh no, crazy! What, what, one more look before you go. There's so many <laughs> stories. I mean, I really appreciate you doing this, visiting, and we could get into particular. You could do an episode on Dusty Rhodes. You could, we could do a podcast oh, yeah. on. You know, we spent a little time on JYD and and DiBiase and and all the different things. I mean, and and, and there's so many guys, but but you, there's a story of you know when the wrestling career is done for some of these guys, they really don't have another place to go so yeah. a particular guy that we we know here he did wrestle in louisiana a little bit he was partners with tiger conway jr but he really was a kind of a star a mid-card to upper card guy in uh, in world-class championship wrestling in texas was pistol oh, pez watley what was his name shaska uh, shaska watley or pistol pez watley but but yeah. Pe- pez watley when he was done Stayed in the business and, and worked kind of behind the scenes, and a lot of them yeah. do that. Just you know, from from guys like Jack and Jerry Briscoe all the way down. I mean, a lot of the former guys have no other real place to go. So tell the story about Ric Flair and oh, yeah. Pistol so, Pez Wadley. <laughs> yeah, this this is just a quick story, but it was just uh, it, was, it was so great. Uh, never forget this. This was in uh, Mobile, Alabama in the WCW Nitro years. Okay. So this this would have been 90, I don't know, 7, 98. Uh, yeah. Yeah, and there's a uh, uh, several buddies of mine. We, we go to, uh, it was just a house show. It wasn't even a televised event. And uh, on the card is, is one of the one of the matches was Ric Flair against Jeff Jarrett. And I think it was probably like second or third from the top match on the show. So it wasn't and, like uh, a world title match. It was just Ric Flair was wrestling. He might not even be yeah, a heavyweight just, title holder then. Right, it was just a Flair Jarrett uh, match, and you know, 
obviously these guys, Flair and Jarrett, could entertain, you know, 8,000 people in their sleep, right? Yep. So, Pistol Pez <laughs> Watley at that point is the, <laughs> he is the head of the ring crew. So, you know, his, he's, his wrestling days are behind him. He's beat up guy, but he's, he's willing to work. And they, so they, you know, to their credit, they brought him on as the head of the ring crew. So he would get the ring from town to town and get it set up and that sort of thing. So if you attended any house shows back during that period, you know, if, if you knew who he was, you would catch Pistol Pez Wiley during the entire card sitting at ringside. Right. In fact, he would sit there at the table and ring the bell. But I'll never forget, uh, yeah, in the middle of this match, and Jarrett and Flair putting on an incredibly entertaining house show match uh, for the people in Mobile. And we noticed it a few minutes before Flair did, but you look over at ringside, and, and Pez is right there, and he's got his, his fist on his cheek, and he's leaning, and he's leaning, and he starts falling asleep. I guess he had a rough night the night before. <laughs> well, Flair gets when Flair notices it, and he, he puts his he gets he's got Jared on his back, and he wraps that spinning toe hold around to get get ready for that figure four, and he goes, "Wake up, Wanley!" Loud enough the, for everybody the, in the building to hear him. The entire oh yeah, the concession <laughs> people heard it. If you if you had chosen to go to the restroom during that match, you heard it. And, Wake up, Watley! <laughs> yeah, and Watley just totally jumps out of his chair. It was it was the funniest thing I've ever seen at a house show. I wish that was on film. I wish that there was a way. Yeah, and I'm sure Flair in his flamboyant way made it, you know, so over the top. But oh yeah, you know, this is the yeah. point where everybody knows nothing's real. I mean, you know, I mean, this is '90s. This is Nitro, and and you know the. Uh, the NWO era wrestling, I guess, or around that time, and and it was it was a different world compared to the Mid South days. So people already know it's not real anyway. And I bet half the people in the building knew who Pez Watley was too. Oh yeah, because again, you know, you, you're, you're only talking about it seemed like an eternity later, but it was still only ten or twelve years after the big '80s run for all these guys. When he was in the what the PYTs with Tiger Conway, is that who they were? Yeah. Of course, yeah, PYTs, and and so yeah, I mean, you know, lots of people, especially your ringside crowd. I mean, they're, they're, you know, we, we we had been going to the matches for fifteen years, so I know that the people around us had, you know, right. And um, but yeah, I still to this day, like I'll tell Lance or anyone else, they're dozing off. You know, wake up, Wadley. <laughs> uh, just you know, a little was, shout out to Coomer on the podcast. I hope he listened to the whole thing. He knows all the stories, but but. He's uh, he's uh, he's another one of the guys that's uh, it's I mean lifelong wrestling fan still into it to this day I don't yeah. I, I really don't watch anymore I really kind of I don't know I just kind of lost interest I'll pop in every now and then but it, you know I, you know, I, I when Vince kind of monopolized everything I, I kind of checked out you know it was pretty much it for me what I tell people is I I still follow the industry really closely I don't I certainly don't have time to watch the weekly product right I don't think it's anything like it used to be I'm I'm an old school grumpy guy now you know what i mean i'm like back in my day you know that right, guy. sure but i keep up um i've got a couple friends that wrestle for wwe and that sort of thing and i will watch a lot of their big shows and i'll watch wrestlemania uh every year and that sort of thing and i was just telling my wife the other day because we had wrestlemania about a week or two ago and i told her i said you know for the most part i'm the bitter old man going ah this could be better this is uh, i'm jaded you know what i mean and I said, but when a story does come together correctly, and it doesn't happen often in today's world, but when a story comes together right and a match happens where they kind of throw out all the silliness and whatever, 
and they have an actual wrestling match that has a good story behind it, and the crowd suspends their disbelief and everyone's on board, it's one of those moments that makes all the, the bad stuff worth it. Like, I still go, wow, there's nothing, there's no entertainment like this. No, they, they, and there never has been. It's like the circus came to TV with soap opera writing and great, you know, athletes. I mean, there's every, like, really kind of, there, there could never be anything like professional wrestling again. No, no. In fact, uh, I think it was Seinfeld in one of his, uh, his books, you know, his comedy books. He says, if pro wrestling wasn't around, you could not invent it. Right. No, no. Now nobody would ever believe it. Nobody would, you know, the way it, the way it all started back in, the, back in the golden era of television on the Mutual Broadcasting Network. It was a national, it was a national broadcasted product that was kind of made for TV. And, and now look. You know now now yeah. look at now look at what at what it is but but I, I I think the glory days we were fortunate to uh to to live as fans young enough to still buy in and and build our weekends around Saturday afternoon or Sunday morning television and and kind of watch the 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 explosion that was professional wrestling on a national scene but particularly here in the mid south I think we're both pretty lucky to have we're, been able to do that we're so fortunate yes oh and I got one more quick story to kind of sum it all up wake up Wadley all right what you got wake to- up Wadley no so you, you mentioned earlier I think in, in the previous uh episode previous volume of this of this uh, mm-hmm. uh discussion how you know you remember when the dog started as a heel or with the wheelbarrow and all that right so I, he then disappeared for a while and then came back later as his good guy run, right? Right. So the story goes, like, Watts knew that this guy had that it factor. He had the charisma. So before he even came back to start up again as a babyface, he knew that was his handpicked guy. And at the time, Ernie Ladd was Watts' main booker. So on these house shows, when they would make their, their circuit of all these towns in, in the Mid-South region... Lad was there to arrange the matches and, you know, do everything according to Watts' big plans. Right. So the first match on the road that the Junkyard Dog has is in New Orleans, and it's against, you remember Scott Irwin? Yep. Oh, absolutely. As the Super Destroyer. Well, I was going to say, you had Bill and Scott Irwin, and they were Super D1 and 2, right? Yes. Yes, that's right. And so this was uh, Junkyard Dog on the undercard against um, Scott Irwin, who was the Super Destroyer. And so... Uh, Ernie Lab was the guy that would tell them, okay, you're going to go out there and you're going to win, you're going to do this thing. So the next day, the next morning, Lad calls Watts on the phone. He says, Bill, your boy doesn't have what it takes. I mean, see what he could do. I put him out there to go 20 minutes with Irwin, and after five minutes, his tongue's hanging out his his mouth like a, like a red necktie. He can't do it, he can't handle it. And Watts says, you're fired. To, to Lad. And yes, and Lad says, what? And he says, you're fired. I didn't tell you to go out there and see what he couldn't do. I told you to see what he can do. He should have beaten Irwin in three minutes. You're fired. And Lad <laughs> said, point taken, boss. <laughs> and that's the kind of like genius Bill Watts was. Yeah, so it, it's kind of like the Goldberg thing. A 20-minute match with Goldberg in his prime when the when the win streak was happening was useless, but a 30-second match, match was what sold him. That's right. That's right. And and Bill Watts knew that way back when, you know, handpicked the dog and knew going in. And um, and Ernie Ladd, who, who 
in his own right, people will say was a brilliant booker, brilliant guy, as far as pro wrestling goes, and charismatic and everything else. But Watch knew better, you know, and that's that's just uh, that that sums up, you know, things like the dog. You talk about the charismatic nature of the dog and the, the towns and and the genius of Bill Watts, and, and I think that's just a a great example of how smart that guy was. Well, Judd Lormond, star of SEAL Team, as Lieutenant Commander Eric Blackburn, and of course, a uh, long long time host of This Week in Wrestling. How long was TWIW on uh, AOC here? Do you remember? Do you have a kind of a rundown yeah, of how long you guys were four on? Four years. I think four we years. Did four years. I'll never yeah, we forget. got we got we got so. I always tell people about the show, and I'm like, we got so fortunate because we came along. Uh, we started doing that show right before. You know, the Monday Night Wars started heating up and the big explosion of both companies. And so we were kind of in the right place at the right time. And uh, we ended up doing about four years of the show. And, um, yeah, it's, such a, it's so great whenever I hear from people back home on, online, on social media, talking about, yeah, man, I used to love TWIW, you know. And uh, it's such great memories, man. I got to really find, I, I'm somewhere I have a picture of us together doing some kind of wrestling something or other. I'm going to have to dig around. And if you got one, maybe text it to me because I know whether it was the Hooters interviews with the wrestlers or something, there's got to be a picture of the two of us involved in wrestling in some way, I'm sure. Well, you know, it's there, without a doubt there was. But uh, the, the unfortunate and fortunate thing is, is back then everything was like hard copy pictures. Yeah. Which I think we're very lucky. Uh, I know I am to to have experienced the college years without digital. <laughs> which people couldn't hold it against you because there was no pictures of it. <laughs> correct. Correct. We may not be where we are now. Had uh, oh no, <laughs> you know. Yeah, but we lived in a, a. We grew up in a different time. But yeah, there's pictures out there. I'll have to look around. I don't know if there's any um, digital ones. You know. Yeah, I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna have to look around too. I I, th- I think I may have a couple. But anyway, I, I look. It, I appreciate it. And and there's so much you could talk about. You could do this. Could be a series that you could do. You know, 24 episodes every year for years and talk oh, about look the, the differences yeah, in you, professional wrestling. Yeah, I meant to say this on, on the intro of, of the first episode that, that we just did. Um, the only problem is going to be keeping this thing under the time limit. Yeah, well, uh, <laughs> luckily I don't have a real time limit, but I don't want to wear people out, so I think I better wrap this one up. But maybe yep. we'll visit again later in the year, and we'll find a we'll do best tag teams or best mass wrestlers, and maybe we will have a little fun talk about about some of the weird stories of things that have happened along the way. And uh, yeah, and, and, we and could I, do like a quarterly wrestling special. There you go, perfect. Sounds great. Well, look, let me know when the uh, when when you guys get the word that CBS is going to give you guys a uh, uh, season three for seal team but but good luck again it's every wednesday night and i guess you guys are going to run until i guess the summer break for television so the the, the show is on probably for the next four or five wednesdays correct that's correct wednesday nights all right uh, nine o'clock cbs well appreciate it judd uh we will uh, we will visit again soon and uh the next episode who knows i might talk about um the 1981 winless New Orleans Saints on the next podcast. Who knows? But but have a uh, have a good one, man. We really appreciate your time. Yes, sir. Thanks for having me.